0: Now the lounge is full of farmers for the 7.30 drop. Teammates all left before they had to
1: buy a round.
0: When they pull
1: the 50-50 and I've lost it. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Rocks Across the Pond, a curling podcast. My name is Ryan McGee coming to you from Richmond, Virginia. And joining me, as always, our professor of peel out in Southampton, England, Jonathan Havercroft. Jonathan, how are you today?
2: It's doing well. It's a nice sunny day. It's actually like close to twenty, so it's feels more like summer than than fall. But uh, enjoying it while it lasts.
1: Did you have any
2: inclination
1: to go to the NFL game that's being played at Wembley right now, as we record?
2: Uh, no, it's expensive <laughs> and tickets are hard to get. I did go curling this week. I did play uh, Tuesday. So that was so fun. Nice. Yeah. Cracked a five bagger in the first end, then just rolled. Then so that was yeah. nice. Yeah.
1: Uh, you're preparing for the what English championships, I assume, or is that just league?
2: That was just league. Um, yeah, no, I've signed up for all three that I'm eligible for this year, so we'll see. But they're all after Christmas. So I'm doing mixed doubles with our previous guest, Lisa Farnell, I think. there's uh, it, She may have a conflict if she does well at Euros, but we'll get to, we'll cross that bridge when we get there. Then the men's in February and mixed in March.
1: I got to go curling at our old club, so I, did, I have actually curled since the last time we talked, since it's not in season right now in Virginia, so that was cool. Got to curl with Mark, our who was a previous guest, so that was a lot of fun. Got to see a bunch of people that I knew. As far as people you would know, there's really, like, two people left that curled in the league that I was curling in, so.
2: Oh, wow, so uh, who was left? Uh, Mark, really, and-
1: Mark and Brian Roll.
2: Oh, yeah. Yeah. All right that cool. was
1: that was about it from people that were there went back way back when, when you were there.
2: Well, that's that's actually good, right? That it keeps going even if the membership turns over. So it's nice to see it still going.
1: I think there were a lot, I think a lot of the veterans were in the late league. I curled in the early league.
2: Yeah. Do you how'd you guys play?
1: Uh we dominated. How was the ice? Uh it was actually better. Uh you could oh, almost really?
2: you could almost play
1: both handles.
2: All right. <laughs> so they well
1: they took out so they took out the sand base that rink that we curled on was had the sand base. Well they took that out and made it a concrete base. So it's almost almost even.
2: Oh, that's that's huge.
1: Yeah. yeah. Um so we have we have a guest this week and we're going to talk a lot about curling on television. And usually I'm the least educated person on this podcast and now I'm really the least educated person on this podcast. Uh, our guest today is Miles McNutt. Uh, if you've heard that name before, uh, you probably read uh, his article in the Curling News. Uh, he had a Curling News cover story talking about NBC's Olympic coverage here in America. Uh, he's a Canadian. He's from Nova Scotia and attended Acadia University and then got his Ph.D., From the university of wisconsin so he's a badger and jonathan i know you did your post-grad work at at minnesota so so a little bit of a rivalry there um currently he is also in virginia so we have two virginians on a curling podcast which is also kind of insane uh he is currently the assistant professor of communication and theater arts at old dominion university in norfolk virginia which is about an hour and a half uh, east of Richmond, uh, if any of you know Virginia geography. So let's bring Miles on now. Miles, how are you today?
0: I am most well today. How are you?
1: I am. I'm fantastic. I'm heavily caffeinated. Thank you so much for joining us. I
0: I will also point out it's way colder in Virginia right now than apparently it is in England, which doesn't seem right to me.
1: Yeah, it's fall.
0: This is great. Yeah, oh. no, I, I'm not complaining. Uh but I also I also appreciate that we're using Celsius on this podcast at the moment.
2: That's um, true. That Ronnie has no nice. idea when I talk in Celsius or pounds. He's like, what what does that mean?
0: <laughs> yeah, I have no idea. I've 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 been in the US for eight years and I still refuse to adapt to Fahrenheit. So that's just sort of how it goes sometimes.
1: <laughs> uh so Miles, thank you again for joining us. Um I guess we need to start. What's uh, what's your curling history? Um, How are how are you connected to this game? And then how did you wind up uh, writing for the curling news and writing that story that that we read uh, back after the Olympics?
0: That's uh, in some ways a complicated story, but in some ways an easy one. Uh, So my curling history is that I grew up in Canada. (laughs) I mean, and it's like, I was trying to think about that, like what got me invested in curling as a kid. I think it was just, it's part of the culture, which is sometimes difficult to explain to people who are not Canadian as to how it just sort of invades your space. Certainly it was on TV all the time. uh, And I think that kind of just becomes part of that tradition. But no, I picked up the game kind of that way, mostly as a fan. Um, I did have one winter where I curled at the Mayflower in Halifax um, growing up in Nova Scotia. And, but I think I just, I got into curling. It's happened with me in a lot of sports at the exact wrong time because I was too young to like play in a league by the standards Mm -hmm. that they had set up. But I was way too knowledgeable about curling to accept the parameters they were giving me. So it was very much like (laughs) learn. And like, I understand the value of learn to curl and those details, but like, I knew the game. I did not need to learn strategy. I did not need to learn... How points were scored. I did not need to learn how angles worked and those kind of dynamics. I just need to learn the mechanics. But the kind of group that I was with was much more basic than that, and I was frustrated. And it was too early in the morning, and I never went back. And that's like a regret because I really w- would have loved to have been able to play the sport more. And as an adult now, I have sort of. Lost my opportunity. I was in Wisconsin for five years, but didn't own a car and therefore couldn't get to the curling club. And it was just, I, I kind of missed my opportunity to play the sport, which I think meant following it was my way of maintaining connection to it and moving from there. Um, and as far as the curling news goes, uh, in 2014, I write for the AV Club uh, as a TV critic. And uh, during the Winter Olympics that year, In Sochi, uh, our editor was like, well, let's write up each day of Olympic coverage, kind of following different sports, thinking about the broadcast approach, and kind of move through that. It was a sort of golden age of TV criticism where they were willing to pay us to do such a thing. Um, Hmm. And I basically was immediately just like, uh, I'm the token Canadian here. I'm writing about curling. Like, I'm kind of joining in. And so I wrote a piece at that point talking about the way in which NBC was covering the Olympics, some of the kind of dissonances that I experienced. That was my first Winter Olympics living in the US. Um, I moved in 2010 in the fall. Uh, And as a result of that, it was my first time really experiencing NBC's Olympic coverage in full and the abomination that exists in many of those sports. And so with curling, that was my chance to really work through those logics to think about what NBC i think was doing a disservice to parts of the sport as it played out and it just so happened that the editor of the curling news had read the story at that time i think he sent me a message there was a typo in there um he wanted fixed which is fair um and then four years later i got an email from said editor where it's like i've been trying to hunt you down based on this article i finally found it would you be interested in updating that for 2018 and so that was what i started doing i was working on that throughout the olympics And then, not shockingly, um, by the time the semifinals and gold medal uh, uh, matches came around it became a very different story than the one I originally imagined I would write Uh, and that sort of I think really captured uh, I guess what was now a sort of groundswell moment uh, for curling in the country that we'll see what happens from there so that was sort of how I got to that stage in writing that and now I'm just kind of following along in the sense of seeing tweets go by and kind of occasionally checking TSN or SportsCenter in order to or SportsNet just to kind of see what's going on until we get to the major events in the new year.
1: Uh, so we want people to go to curling news website and read the article there uh, but just you know overview of it your main point was uh, the 2018 coverage basically f- forgot that 2014 even happened they you know basically ignored anything previously and started all over again um, and obviously you were you were critical of that <laughs> I um, was real realistically, though, how many people watching in 2018 do you think watched curling coverage in 2014? And, you know, how should NBC have changed their approach?
0: It's – and that's the thing. It's like I don't – I, I, in, in writing the article, I kind of, at various points of intervals, uh, have always trying to reinforce the sort of point where it's like, realistically, I don't expect them to completely change their approach and to appeal to more of a enthusiast audience in this case. They understand that the Olympics audience is inherently sort of a casual one that pops in and out, and they might not have been there four years ago. And you always need to prepare for that idea of your base viewer is sort of someone who doesn't understand this sport and doesn't follow it in any time other time. of the year and needs to check in that being said though i feel like there's a balance you can try to strike in terms of really establishing that okay some people are going to learn the game that ultimately it's not as though curling is appearing in most cases on nbc's primetime broadcast you are seeking out a cable channel that is devoted to curling and Recording a broadcast specific to curling, in all of those circumstances, I think there's more room to acknowledge an enthusiast audience, particularly... When you think about the live streams uh, that were produced by, I think, sort of the Olympic Broadcasting Consortium, uh, in which they were ultimately, you have to like self-select to turn, tune into crowing in that situation, and yet you'd still tune in and they're explaining what the hog line is, and they're explaining how the scoring system works in a very basic way. And I feel like there's a balance you can strike to provide some type of enthusiast response. And my question is sort of, when does that kick in if you're NBC? When does that kick in? If you're thinking about that sort of like we are now sort of – if 2010 was like a pivotal moment for curling, finding the zeitgeist in a social media era, 2014, you would think that would sort of expand and move on. You then get to 2018, and you get this critical moment, and it feels like nothing's changed. What can – is there ever going to be a point where they can grow at all in terms of how they treat curling fans as curling fans and not as sort of just a random audience viewer? And I feel like there's a balance you can strike without going full can full Canada, if you will, uh, in terms of how you treat your audience.
1: And I think that's fair because during the Olympics, you know, I watch figure skating once every four years and they don't, you know, every single night they're not sitting there and explain to me explaining to me the differences in the jumps and the differences and how things are scored. You know, they'll they'll cover that kind of briefly at the beginning of the games, but then, you know, they're not hammering the point home of here's, you know, here's how this is scored, here's how here's how they compete in this sport. They they kind of, you know, assume that people watching figure skating have a general idea of what's going on when really i kind (laughs) of (laughs) don't
0: well i mean i think the other factor too is that like over the course of the event like curling is one of the olympic sports that it's extended for pretty much almost the entire games now when you Mm -hmm. throw in mixed doubles and as a result of that like if you catch it early in the games when you get to the end there should it should feel like you've grown in understanding you should feel like you've gained a certain expectation and sort of knowledge that you can work from. But for the most part, the, live, the, web stream, the webcasts and uh, the NBC broadcasts, they don't really pay a lot of attention to what's happened so far in the event. They don't really bring up the standings all that much to talk about the implications of those uh, draws in the larger picture of things. They really don't do any of that work of what is inherently This is the TV's going to be, but it's sort of, it's a serialized event. It grows in understanding. Uh, Events that happen early on will impact things that happen later. And that's an approach that NBC just doesn't spend any time on, despite the fact, as you point out, that in figure skating and other events, they do do that work. And that's because figure skating is a marquee event. Figure skating, there's an understanding that there is an enthusiast audience who tunes in every four years to pay attention to figure skating more. But they don't treat curling the same way. And I think it's in part just a belief that the event is confusing, which I understand. I, I'm not going to claim it's not in some ways. But I think it's also just a refusal to acknowledge and fully understand that there is people tuning back in every four years, that people do kind of educate themselves and pick up this information. And I feel like. If if NBC really wants to grow their broadcast tradition of this sport, I think they need to commit to better understanding the diversity of their audience and that there is sort of an enthusiast base that could be used and ultimately grown through broadcast coverage work that they seem very much disinterested in doing.
1: And that brings us to the reason we're having you on now is Curling Night in America has kicked off on NBC Sports Network um, the first episode was two weeks ago. I did not watch the second episode, which was the first, uh, mixed doubles game, but the, I watched the first game, which was Italy in the United and the John Schuster team. Uh, and it was kind of the same deal. They went over, you know, team Schuster's run to the gold medal almost end to end, <laughs> uh, and, assume, and assumed that no one had any real knowledge other than this is the gold medal team. Um, coming into this coverage, uh, it does, and curling night in America is a little different. Um, you know, I called it a glorified infomercial for USA curling, which honestly is fine because I think that that helps USA curling and growing the sport here in the country. Um, yeah. But is that kind of a bad omen for the next Olympics and what we can expect from NBC's coverage then?
0: I mean, it's hard. I mean, like, Jonathan, you haven't seen uh, Crowing Night in America, but uh, you have seen NBC Olympic coverage at some point in time.
2: Yeah, no, when I lived in the U.S., like back, I, I think there's one year they had actually the U.S. national championship on. And they uh, they cut it off as the game was going to the extra end because they ran out of time.
0: We'll see. <laughs> and, and I guess the thing I, so why I say that is like look so curling Night in America I watched the mixed doubles one in fact um, and what's in, what's apparent to me watching it is that it is sort of just they view it as an infomercial for USA Curling but also for the Olympic Channel which is what NBC ultimately wants you to do which is to upgrade your cable package to subscribe to this Olympic Channel where you can see sort of events that are happening. Uh, between Olympics that are relevant to the Olympic teams. But the thing is that ultimately their approach to this is to invest you in Team USA, not in Olympics coverage or the sports involved, but Team USA. And so curling night in America is not tuning into major events that are happening within the curling season that might get somebody to say, oh, well, curling happens all year round, every year. Here are the major events, world championships to go national championships. That's not what Curling Night in America is designed to do. Curling Night in America is this very, you know, patriotic-seeming, let's pit America against these other teams in a glorified exhibition, invent an America's Cup um, to kind of go through this, this was all taped in August, to my understanding. Correct. Right. So it's a pre-taped sort of just like, you know, all done at that point in time, then edited down to be able to highlight these personalities who, of course, may or may not actually be the Olympians four years from now, depending on how that all plays out. Um, And so like with Matt and Becca Hamilton, it was all these video packages. Of course, they didn't win or perform all that well in mixed doubles. And so as a result, it's just like how great their sibling bond is, uh, talking about his shoes, just like all these little puff pieces and then the curling, but, like, the curling was not good. Um, It was, in fact, very bad. Um, It was not (laughs) a strong performance by the Chinese team in particular, and I just realized that, like, it was... Curling can be good television, but this was harnessing none of the ways in which curling can be good TV. And instead, it was a glorified infomercial to play that out. But the other thing that struck me was that, like, it's not even in the same time slot consistently. It moves around. Uh, this one was at 11 p.m. Eastern. Uh, mm-hmm. And I think the previous one, like, just moving around the schedule just kind of gets moved from here to there. Um, this isn't something that's really. NBC trying to build like primetime programming invest people in this process it's really just a commercial for the olympic channel for uh, usa curling and that has value but it's not taking advantage of curling's televisual value and of the potential to actually create a broadcast tradition and invest people in curling on a year round basis versus just sort of like i guess uh, reminding them that they're supposed to feel things when usa
1: does well in a sport So based on how many people watch curling night in America and it's, it's not a lot um, is NBC. Do you think that NBC can look at ratings or lack thereof of curling night in America and judge based on that? Okay. Maybe we, maybe we need to tone down our coverage of curling because it does, although it does seem like they're starting to, you know, televise more of the, You know, real world competitions instead of the made for TV event like we have here and that a lot of that comes down to they have this Olympic channel that they have to fill a lot of hours worth of coverage for. Um, So would ratings from Curling Night in America hurt the future of coverage on the Olympic channel or do you think NBC is finally invested in this based off of the last Olympics?
0: I think NBC is playing a long game. And so I think in the context of this discussion, where their ultimate goal is to push people to Olympic Channel and remind people um, that that option exists, um, when they acknowledge that, for the most part, the way they're programming this, it's not as though they are programming it in prime time on prime nights. Um, it's off, based on even doing it in the fall. It's competing with every other major sport. So Friday night, you were dealing with among other things, uh, a World Series game, you were dealing with uh, the NBA season starting, uh, you're dealing with uh, kind of the end of college football, all these things. When you've got all these factors in play, you know, they're not expecting this to really perform extremely well. I do think it is sort of a long-term effort to acknowledge that this sport is something that people were interested in and that they could be interested in the future. And if they create even a little bit more investment, that becomes one more thing that they can push when they put curling on USA in four years time. And it's much worse time slots and trying to figure all that out. Um, I think for those reasons, I think I don't think it's going to have a direct impact. I'm not, I don't think they're concerned about linear ratings. I think they're more interested in, I guess, awareness as a project. But to be fair, it's like no one knows exactly what they plan on, and no one knows what can happen between now and then. We don't know what the state of USA curling will be in a couple of years. Certainly, I think we all hope that it's strong still, but that curling is not always that consistent. And so trying to figure that out is going to be their challenge, but we also – it's not like they really stated what their plan is. Nothing about Curling Night in America makes me feel that they've like committed a whole lot more resources to this process. Um, I remember when they did do – I think it was the Women's Worlds uh, on NBC. They cut away from it. From uh,
1: the last shot. From the last <laughs> shot to
0: go to uh, Sports Jeopardy, if I recall correctly. Um, and it was a Sports Jeopardy episode in progress. And when they did that, it just made very clear that there's not this sort of like global understanding of the way this sport is meant to be watched. And I realized that in some ways my understanding of this is shaped by that I watched curling in Canada in an era where they never cut the commercial at the start of ends and they never missed a shot. And I know that's no longer the case even in Canada. And so that's just a matter of larger... Efforts by broadcasters to eat away at broadcast time for commercials due to changing financials. I think NBC will face all of that pressure, but there's, I think, almost a philosophical sense of we want people to care about these sports. And I do think the gold medal put curling in the map. That's going to be a narrative now. That going into next year's games, they're going to be defending a gold medal. That's something that can come up in major broadcasts as something they might want to push things towards. I think we're going to see more of an effort towards that. The question for me is that, like I said, there's a lot of time for that to change. And I guess the hope is that whatever ratings are there, just kind of maintain at least the status quo. But no one knows what people do with ratings anymore. Ratings are such an inherent uh, complexity in terms of who they're really measuring anyway. So I don't think they're a huge issue to answer your short question in very long form.
1: Uh so that, that does bring us to Olympic Channel which you mentioned and <clears throat> Jonathan this is a Olympic Channel is a new channel that NBC launched I forget which one it replaced they basically draw they basically rebranded one of the NBC universal properties that they already had I think it was oh it's Universal HD Yeah
2: right. so, and, and so is it it's but it's a package deal with uh US Olympic Committee right like not uh, it yes I believe yeah. so Um, And so so part of the deal is NBC gets the Olympic coverage package in exchange for promoting Olympic sports in between. Yeah.
1: Well, and
0: so the kind of looking at this, like the Olympic channel is a sort of over the top video service you can subscribe to through the IOC that that operates on a global level. What this is, it's sort of a localized version of this where they're basically taking the branding Mm -hmm. from the Olympic channel and subsequent to that being able to then basically air some of the things that Olympic channel is producing uh, for a global audience. And in that case, sort of your international competitions, uh, those things kind of coming through, but they're also able to kind of produce with on their level, more localized American focused programming, which is how you get something like curling night in America.
1: So they used Olympic channel earlier this year to air the first leg of the curling world cup. They actually aired a decent number of the U.S.'s games. And what I think will be very interesting, or at least to me, it may not be to other people is how Olympic channel. I assume, cause I assume that's what they're going to use to cover. It covers the curling world cup, uh, event. That's going to be in Omaha here in the beginning of December, because one, it's going to be in the U S so you're not going to have to worry about time zone differences. You're going to be able to air those games, um, live, uh while people are awake uh and it's going to involve team schuster and team sinclair which right now are probably with all due respect to team roth probably the two teams that usa curling is trying to push um onto onto the u.s consciousness as ter- as as team usa um so i'm interested to see how that coverage works how do you think Cause they haven't announced any of their plans for that event. Uh, what do you anticipate miles, uh, from Olympic channel and NBC for that event, which was created this year?
0: I mean, I I didn't get to see, I I'm not willing to spend the money to subscribe to Olympic channel. Um, But what I would say is that in that sense, like, so I just checked here for the first leg. They didn't announce their TV schedule until five days before it started. Correct. Um, And so that raises some questions for me about how to prepare for this and how to work through this. Um, But given the amount that they're sort of covering and working through, I think you will see them. uh, I guess the big question for me is, will they bother airing things that are not USA focused? earlier in the tournament. In other words, to treat it more like a crowing tournament is treated in Canadian broadcasting tradition where you've got sort of multiple sheets airing at a given point in time that you treat the entire tournament as sort of a point of value versus just finding those opportunities for US um, to be able to compete. Uh, And I think that's something where there's two factors. I think one is what is the cost associated with that? and what they see the value of, but also just like what else is happening within the sort of sphere of Olympic programming that could theoretically take precedence on that. And that's what I honestly don't know. I don't know what's happening in early December that could be relevant to that, uh, but that's something that that's probably what they have to consider. Uh, I think that's sort of the whole challenge of curling broadcasting is that in Canada, the idea of TSN or Sportsnet, just like giving up seven hours of its day to that programming makes perfect sense because it is among the most valuable sports that they could possibly air. And there's only a few things that would outrank it in a Canadian context. Whereas in the US, there are dozens of things that they probably see as outranking mm-hmm. it. And so the amount of time investment of actually covering a tournament like it's really meant to be covered um, is probably not happening. But I mean, given what they did with a time zone difference, I would certainly expect that they would at least match that. Um, It becomes so much easier, but it's also possible that because it would be in prime time or at times of the day where that's different, that maybe they might look at it differently. Um, I I wish I could better understand the decision-making of uh, niche cable channels and the way they program things, but it's a completely different world compared to more traditional broadcast uh, scheduling, and they could do all sorts of things in all sorts of different ways.
1: And you look at... U S coverage versus Canadian covers the the, you know, the U S curling audience is kind of new to the scene. Yeah. So they're kind of discovering this and they're discovering the kind of unique aspects that curling brings to a TV broadcast. You know, I've never been to, I've never attended a big tournament as a spectator. Uh, but it seems to me that watching curling on television, uh, has more of an appeal, uh, because of how unique curling is and that you can have the players mic'd up and you can under, you can hear them talking strategy throughout the game. Um, you know, is that, is that something that you think U S audiences are eventually going to gravitate towards, or um, is that something that the uh, you know, the, the networks are going to see value in? Um,
0: I'm, I'm not super convinced of that. I still feel like there's just a barrier people can't get past. But I think you're right. I think it's absolutely like to follow the strategy, to be able to know what they're thinking, to be able to move from. I mean, I did find one thing about the Curling World Cup that was interesting was that while you had the element of strategy coming from the American team, the Chinese team, of course, was not speaking English, nor should they in that situation. They should speak their native language. But it meant that you weren't really able to fully invest in the strategy of both sides, and I felt like in that case, the commentators weren't doing enough to bring the strategy out of that element. And I think that's where the American broadcast can frustrate me, where it's like, I think you're right, that the value of the game coming from the mics, coming from the strategy, is so much of what I became invested in, right? Of kind of being able to learn why people hit certain shots, thinking ahead, sort of anticipating what they might do, seeing the options available before they even talk about it. Curling broadcast trained me to do that. In a way that if I actually went on a curling sheet, I'd be screwed because I would actually not be able to do the mechanics of it, but I would know exactly (laughs) what I wanted to do. Whereas I feel like, On the U.S. broadcast, even if you have a situation where both teams are talking strategy while mic'd up, I felt like often the commentators didn't try to go into strategy themselves. That it was almost like there was sort of an edict where it's like you don't want to talk too much about what they're trying to do or what their options are or even judging if this was the right call or what would I do in this situation. And like they have Pete Fenton, they have people who know strategy and who are Mm -hmm. capable of this. But it just seemed like they weren't emphasizing that part of the game, which is why I just feel like there is this sort of like in-their-ear mandate of don't over don't overcomplicate this. Don't make this seem like it's this sort of complex game of strategy. Focus on, uh, I guess, I don't know what else it is except for a game of strategy. But I think they kind of are just like downplay that side of things. And that's infuriating to watch. And yet I think part and parcel of their larger approaches.
1: So, really, the US needs to find it's Russ Howard and that person that yeah. can, in a very quick, very quick one sentence answer, give you context to what they're thinking on the ice. Um, so, basically, do you, I mean, does it come down to hiring someone from Canada like NBC did with Kevin Martin back during the Olympics to yeah. come in and, and be able to give those explanations?
0: I mean, to be fair, I mean, like, you know, with all respect, Kevin, Martin, I don't think he was able to even, even do that much. I do think that's why there was sort of a limit placed on what how much they could talk and work through. But no, I mean, like, I would argue that, yeah, I think that's sort of what you need to do in a way. I think you need to give s- – I guess I don't want to call it a translator but that's kind of what it is Um, to think about sort of a way by which we can invest the audience in that way because that's the thing like watching US curling coverage it's not that I can't enjoy it it's not that I'm like constantly angry at the commentators who are just doing their job and appealing to a different audience than me It's, it's like we think about this all the time and thinking about television scholarship it's like we are often not the target audience of the programs that we watch and we just have to learn that's the case right we can't be narcissistic and presume everything thing is for us particularly when we're trying to grow a sport and move from that but they need to find someone who can sort of code switch who can move between sort of appealing to that basic audience and describing things in more sort of basic terms of what the goals are and those types of things, but who can also translate strategy for them, who can talk about the goals of why they're making that decision and to be able to add a layer to that and move accordingly. And that's a difficult task. I think we're asking, I'm asking a lot of NBC's curling coverage and I think I always have, and I've always been disappointed because of that. But I do feel like there's a point in which we have to make that expectation clear and in which they need to grow. Like the idea that NBC's curling coverage has not changed in the past over over a decade, that their basic philosophy of how to cover curling has only really changed in the sense that the U.S. is good and therefore there's success to celebrate. Otherwise, I'm not convinced that they've actually made any kind of strides in terms of how to approach this, um, except for I think hiring Kevin Martin is maybe the one thing we could point to. But everything else has just been status quo, and I feel like that there's a point at which that's just no longer sustainable, and I feel like we're there.
2: Yeah, I'm wondering if actually who they're missing is not so much a Russ as a Vic Router, right? That that I think Vic's skills are really underrated. Like he he knows the game really well. He actually, he actually curls, but yeah. he is able to. He's also a sports broadcaster. He knows how to call the game, but he knows exactly when to make that switch of playing dumb versus kind of showing what to mm-hmm. know. And so he'll often ask, uh, you know, Cheryl or Russ. A question that's kind of aimed at the lay at the layman or the non curler, but do it in, in kind of an unobtrusive ways. And that, that's a that's a hard skill to find, like a sports broadcaster who's also knows curling well enough to know when to play dumb and kind of bring the the experts in.
0: And it is hard, like, for the record, I I love being on a podcast where we can just say they need a Vic router and everybody knows what's going on. Um, (laughs) But I do think you're right that, like, one of the things that I take away from that and one of the things I sort of work from there is that, you know, NBC's, you know, Olympic broadcast approach is very much generalist in focus. But it also sort of dives in to those, like, at the Olympics, it's very much what is the story here? Right? Not so much like what is the sport, how does it understand, it's what is the narrative. And that narrative focus is something that certainly exists in curling, right? You've got the returning champion, you've got the kind of veteran, you've got the upstart. Like there's always those sorts of narratives. But I find oftentimes that within a curling broadcast, the narrative is not as much important as the game and the game and its mechanics and the strategy and those details. And I feel like there's just, there's this conflict between the micro and the macro when it comes to NBC, that the macro is sort of the ultimate goal of not even just big picture of the competition, but just like America, this is the narrative and things are very much boiled down. But, like, you're right, I think that being able to, in the moment, pinpoint an opportunity to bring up something small, to bring the audience in, but also educate them to use that as a growth moment to understand that if you've already covered that once in a match, you really don't have to cover it again twice later, that you don't have to keep coming back to that. Um, And, I mean, part of the issue is, like, watching the – NBC broadcasts themselves are better in this respect, but watching the webcasts, which were done by the broadcasting consortium – they clearly had a fact sheet in front of them. Like They clearly were operating under – these were not curling experts. These were people who had a basic knowledge but were working from a fact sheet. And you could hear them just bringing up the same things over and over again. And it's just like, yes, line violations. We know. We know that that's a thing. It actually comes up very rarely in the context of curling. But it's a fact that they were given. It's a rule that they can bring forward. And I feel like – viewing curling through that lens is not a way to get somebody invested in it it's not a way that i became invested in curling and i feel like that goes for really any fan of the game it's really about the strategy it's about the thinking it's the thinking person's game in a lot of ways and i feel like broadcasting has done a good job in canada of adapting and developing that and i feel like nbc's a larger approach keeps them from investing in it but i think that's a good strategy to move forward with
1: do you think they were just caught off guard like a lot of us were by the US's success in this last Olympics and now they kind of have to think sit back and think okay now what? Oh, they definitely no one was prepared
0: um we think we know that i wasn't prepared i don't think anybody was kind of moving from there but like that's such a gift of an opportunity and it's certainly they very quickly moved like i realized as i was watching the gold medal game it's like i'm gonna have to watch more coverage than i thought to kind of take this in because i need to see when they bring them into the studio when they show up on the today show when they do those kind of post appearances that kind of echo through when they you know the idea of the uh, american camera people searching through the crowd At the closing ceremonies to find the curling gold medalists uh, did not enter my head before that Olympic Games, (laughs) Um, but like those are all the things that NBC knows how to do really well. Celebrating success is 100% their whole purpose, like to turn a gold medalist into this sort of hero. The issue is that like they're not used to doing it with a sport like curling, but what's fascinating to me is that they do it with other sports that they almost never cover things like snowboarding things like skiing things that very rarely come up during the rest of the year and which the event structure makes it kind of difficult to follow in the same way but like curling is such a good broadcast sport curling is something you can get invested in a season to follow a team as it goes through these different events to look to national championships to kind of like fight to represent your country on a global stage. These are all the things the Olympics are built around that curling already does. We don't need to invent them from a whole cloth. We don't need to create... A nonsense exhibition event and then air it on tape delay for months like those are not necessary steps to take the sort of narratives of olympic curling of olympic curling and then like have them they exist already but they're not willing to commit to following that they're not willing to invest on that level and i i don't see that changing next year it's, i don't think They could have probably adjusted this approach in time to make it work. Maybe we say, oh, they just didn't have time to do it next year. I don't think that's happening. I think that they're just committed to doing as little as possible to theoretically grow the approach of the sport, but not so much to actually commit to its potential
1: and it, it it's why I'm also another reason that I'm really interested in what happens during this curling world cup because it's a it's a new event that was basically created to put the flags on the backs of these curlers which is what NBC absolutely loves yeah. is this is to, you know as you said they're driving you to follow team USA so with this curling world cup that NBC now has the rights to it is exactly that it is a, it is a mini season it's four events but it's a mini season where that team USA is participating in so I kind of I really am interested in how they cover this particular world cup event in December in the U S because you have a previous event and you have previous results for team USA. And again, will they bring up, here's what happened in the pre here's what happened in leg number one. And USA is fight is fighting for a spot, a spot in, uh, the grand final coming up in May.
0: Yeah. Like, I mean, that's the thing. Those are the kind of things that are so central to this, but like, I don't know if they'll do that because like I looked at the broadcasts for the previous one and it was almost exclusively mixed doubles. Mm -hmm. until you got towards the end for the finals um and i was watching that and i'm like i get i get the whole mixed doubles argument i understand why they it makes more exciting tv and there's more scoring i I get all of that um and i will say after watching it at the olympics and kind of feeling uh, kind of like ah this is kind of cheap i then started watching full curling and it felt slow so i get it like i get the dynamic but at the same time like if that's all they're going to cover are they really going to focus that much on what's happening to their sheets or ongoing standings or any of that? And uh, I'm not convinced they are. I just don't think it's in there. They don't, they don't perceive it as being in their interest to do so. Um, but I also think that, like, I never saw any kind of marketing. I don't watch a lot of NBC, but certainly if uh, the Internet algorithms know anything, they should know I care about curling. They should be sending me these ads. I should be targeted in some way. Um, and I saw nothing about that. Um, nothing came through. Uh, and so also, like, are they advertising this, right? Are they trying to pull people in? Are they really letting people know that this is happening? Um, and that's where I guess the question is, how are they reaching those people and how are they trying to
1: invest them in this? Yeah, and I think that might be the failure that they've had so far is they're not, you know, NBC has this product and they're not promoting it internally of, you know, watch watch this at the beginning of December. Also with the, the previous leg, I think they just pulled... The WCF feeds of those, so it'll also be interesting to see if NBC sends its own crew to Omaha, since it's here in the U.S.
0: Right, I would have to presume they would. Um, I don't. I think logistically it would be kind of silly to just pull those feeds, but at the same time, that not be the limit to their financial investment, mm-hmm. right?
1: Yep. So that that's that'll be the telltale sign. If they don't tell people that the curling World Cup event is if, you know, if they don't tell NBC Sports Network and Olympic Channel watchers that this event is going on, if they don't promote it internally and they just pull the WCF feed again when it's in Omaha, then we'll pretty much know what the next four years of curling coverage on NBC is going to be like.
0: When I also think it's like I didn't uh, I skipped through the commercials on my broadcast, but like, are they advertising the event like the people, because people can obviously attend this event, right? It's a live curling event. Like I didn't see any ads for it. Skipping through curling, like curling night in America, that seems like something you should be telling people that if they're in the Midwest and watching curling, which that could very well be a place where they are watching curling. Um, that hey, look, you know, this event is happening live. You should get tickets. You should go. I'm so used to watching curling in Canada and seeing like live event coming up next year's like Briar, next year's Scotties, that they're kind of working through that right, that that's sort of, that experience, I didn't see anything trying to promote that. And that seems like something you should be promoting by letting people know this major event is happening in the country where Team USA will be like attending and competing. I, I didn't see any evidence of that. I'd be curious to go through the recording and see if it's there, but I don't think it is.
1: Um, I don't specifically remember Curling World Cup, but I do remember advertising for the Continental Cup okay. uh, in Vegas. Okay. Well,
0: because people want to go to Vegas, yes,
1: yeah, exactly. I, <laughs> yeah. I've I've been to I've been to Omaha. Uh, I've actually not been to Vegas, but I've been to Omaha, and yeah, people actually <laughs> do want to go to Vegas. I'll, <laughs> Omaha is it's fine.
0: <laughs> yes, this uh, is not an Omaha bashing podcast, to my understanding, no, but I'm been. sure it's fine.
1: Um, so as you said, the switching to Canadian coverage, you know, their their strength is their. Their ability to understand who their audience is, and it's one of the weaknesses of NBCs. I don't think they understand the audience that is sitting there watching this product that they're giving us. Uh, Tia, TSN and Sportsnet definitely do. Um, and one of the big issues now, and we talked about it on a previous podcast, is what on earth is going to happen with residency rules for the Briar and the Scotties, and you have to. Kind of counteract the the fact that these main events their their draw is you know wearing the green of Saskatchewan or having the buffalo on your back if you represent Manitoba versus having these high end players that are competing to go to the Olympics. So, in order for Canada to succeed and get funding from the Canadian Olympic committee, they have to succeed at worlds and they have to succeed at the Olympics, which they did not last time around. Um, So they have to send their best players to these events. And then you're restricting them on where they can live because of this traditional event um, that came from well before that this sport appeared in the Olympics. So now they're trying to, to balance those two things. So when they come back, with the new residency rules, like they have kind of said that they're going to later this year or at, toward the end of the season, and they decide that if you're a professional curler going after the Olympics, you can live wherever, but you can't um, you can't be in the briar or the Scotties, how much is that going to hurt their attendance and how much is that going to hurt their ratings, which in turn would also affect Curling Canada's bottom line?
0: I, I wasn't aware of this and it's really interesting to sort of read up on what the changes look like. Um, I think to some degree, like I remember growing up that like, you know, Nova Scotia didn't have, Daisy did okay and uh, men's and certainly Colleen Jones mm-hmm. growing up kind of uh, moving from there. Like I definitely was invested in that, but the value was to see the same people competing each year to see the best of the best working through this. Um, but in Canada, I feel like the depth of talent, it's also about shop making, right? It's also about Those kind of opportunities. I feel like that can more or less, like, we're not talking about a complete collapse in this case, right? I feel like the curling tradition in the country of people getting together of, you know, like, I mean, attending a curling event is really just about, like, drinking and enjoying the camaraderie. (laughs) Like, it's not really about, like, being able to follow the strategy because you really can't. Like, you point out without mics, you really can't follow a lot of what's happening on the ice. Uh, I I feel like for those reasons, we're not talking about a complete collapse of that system. But you probably would see an impact. You would see things kind of move from there. But I guess my question would also be... In what ways would those players who could no longer compete at the national championships still be broadcast in other forms, other events? And could that sort of make up for where you could still get Decent ratings for the national events, based on the sense of local pride, the sense of importance at scale. But you could simil- but also kind of leverage the more professional side of things for events that might get better ratings, since it's the only chance to see those teams play. That maybe there'd be sort of an offsetting factor that way. Just sort of speculating from there.
2: That's kind of that's the Canada Cup, right, Jonathan? Yeah. So I mean. We kind of just, well, a couple of thoughts. So one I had after our last podcast is, is we've actually already seen this, right? So in the early 2000s, there was the boycott. I'm not sure if you, you guys remember that, but that's where the top 15 to 20 men's teams, they weren't quite pro teams at the time, but they were the, you know, a lot of the top teams at the time decided to sit out and not enter the briar for three or four years between. Two thousand season, I think, in two thousand three or two thousand four season, and so that that was kind of the, the era when Randy Furby made his run, largely because right. Kevin Martin wasn't playing down in Alberta. I don't like. I don't really recall it as being that big a problem for the briar in terms of the draw back then like it was just kind of known and there'd be like a little argument or you know martin would try to put an asterisk on furby's run but i think a lot of people were like wow the furby team's still really dominant out on the cash circuit
0: yeah and i mean and they still it's not as though we got like these bumbling amateurs who didn't know how to curl Right, the depth of the field in Canada is such that there are probably all sorts of really great, capable curlers that are pushed out by these, you know, high caliber, you know, best in the world teams. That doesn't mean that the second or third tier of like of that system is not going to make good TV. Is not going to create good competition.
2: Yeah, exactly. And, and in some ways, it might be more interesting to kind of get some new high name teams in. So, so my thought after the podcast, I think I tweeted it at Ryan is just. The easiest way to fix the pros versus what I call Joes or amateurs question right now in Canadian curling is let the winner of the Canada Cup be the representative international competition. Let the winners of the Scotties and the Briar get guaranteed berths in next year's Canada Cup. And then teams are free to either opt into the, the Scotties and Briar playdown or just use the CTRS system to qualify for the Canada Cup. So, There's nothing about the Canada Cup about residency requirements. You can just grab the four best players you want, go to spiel in all the pro spiels and all the slams, and if you're in the top seven or top six at the end of the the kind of qualification time period, you're in the Canada Cup and still have a path to worlds. All you're doing is giving up one bond spiel.
1: But I also, I believe, based off the numbers that Curling Canada released uh, recently, the Canada Cup, fewer... Fewer people in attendance and fewer viewers, uh, and that's when you're removing the, you know, the cresting uh, off of these players. So the cresting obviously has a value to Canadians who are turning tuning in to watch these games. What happens? If, would there be a backlash if you go the other way and you either remove residency rules or you? take it one further down and say, okay, you can have two out-of-province players. Uh, Would there be backlash uh, in terms of attendance and viewership if you did that to the Breyer and the Scotties?
0: I mean, what I would say is that, like, uh, yes, obviously, I think the Canada Cup but like, I think part of it's just tradition and habit, right? Like we tune into the Briar, we tune into the Scotty. We're used to tuning in for those events. Um, that sense of tradition of ritual, right? We often think about the ritual function of broadcasting from a TV perspective. You tune in because it's what you've always done. Like I would instinctively tune into the Briar and the Scotties because that's what I always tuned into. Whereas like a new event that's being framed differently, even if it has the teams that I want to follow, the ritual function wouldn't draw people in the same way. It wouldn't pull people in. But if you invest in that ritual function, if you alter the meaning of these events to give more value to the Canada Cup, to make that sort of in many ways um, to the model that Jonathan's laying out, sort of like almost a, I guess, uh, uh, kind of a final event in the kind of larger season pulling from the Briar and from the Scotties, I think you could get that ritual developed. You can kind of build that tradition. They just haven't done it yet. And so I don't feel like you necessarily destroy the briar. If you kind of take that away from that, you just have to kind of use the rituals differently in that case.
1: This is, this is a sport that maybe more so than any other sport, the big changes both in, you know, in terms of rules changes and kind of cultural changes among the top end players have come from the players themselves. Um, Maybe more so than any other sport, uh, Jonathan, what do you think the the players want? Do you think that they want to keep the Breyer and the Scotties more traditional, or do you think that they want to go the other way and have you know less restrictions on where they can live and less restrictions on the teams that they can form?
2: Well, I think there's a real schism between, I mean, I guess it depends on who we mean by the quote unquote players, right? So, I would say the,
1: the, the top end guys.
2: Right. So, so and again, it's like, how many teams are you talking about? You're probably like, if you, the top probably 10 to 20 teams on each side uh, in Canada, maybe they're down with kind of no residency restrictions at all, but it might even be less than that. Like, you know, I know in BC, there was a lot of uh a lot of flack about John Morris's kind of pseudo residency during his uh, Jim Cotter years. Right. And so a lot of people saw this as just bring bring a ringer in, taking a team that was a good provincial team, but probably not like top ten team in Canada, and just adding John Morris and making it, you know, a potential potential Olympic team. And there's a lot of really good competitive curlers kind of in that province I know who are like, well, this is crap because, you know, you're just bringing in a ringer and it's messing up our system. And we could have hung with Jim Cotter, but not with this super team, right? So there's, and I'm sure with Homan. There's a similar kind of flack on women's curling in Ontario, where teams the next tier down, the teams that are always making the provincials, but with all Ontario-based players, see that as an unfair advantage, right? And um, that's the real tension there: is that the the top ten teams might be able to get together and form super squads, but then what do you do? And that's basically forty to eighty people on each side in the country with a million curlers, and what do you do for the other? Thousand to two thousand or so that still sign up for playdowns.
1: So if the so, so if the majority of the players in Canada want tighter residency restrictions, and the top end players obviously want to both go for the Olympics and go for the Briar and the Scotties because those are the traditional tournaments that you grow up wanting to win, is the final say going to come from? the broadcast partners and Curling Canada's bottom line where they say, okay, we need, you know, are they going to say we need these players in order to succeed um, financially? Um, So we're going to cut these restrictions for the Briar and the Scotties.
2: I don't so knowing how Canada, Curling Canada works, it's still, the board is still constituted out of the 12 member associations. So each of the provincial associations, Still elects, I think it's two delegates each to the board. And the board so the board is still really grassroots democratic in that way, right? And so the the final say is gonna be these provincial associations. And I can actually see them pushing back too that each many of them have as their big money maker the provincial championships. So you got the Boston Pizza Cup in in Ontario, you've got the Ontario sorry, you got the Boston Pizza Cup in Alberta, you got the Ontario Town Card in Ontario that still gets some TV coverage and some revenue from Rogers, And so I think they're probably just as worried that if you kill that provincial level by just making it all these super teams rolling in and enrollments drop down and entry fees disappear, they've got to worry about their bottom line too. So there's certainly pressures from both sides. There's definitely the TSNs and the National Rogers Sports Nets want the stars on as much as possible. And the elite teams definitely want maximum flexibility to put together the best teams they want. But there's also this pushback from below with uh, what I call like competitively provincial players still kind of playing the circuit, maybe not quite punching through to the slams, but like that next step down and the provincial associations that like for them, it could be a financial disaster if you abolish residency uh, requirements altogether. So it's not an easy solution, right?
1: So if you're if you're TSN, what do you think? What do you think, Miles? Do they want, uh, you know, do they want Mike McEwen, or do they just want Team Manitoba? Uh,
0: I don't think they would necessarily. I don't think they know exactly what they want. I think that there's an open flexibility. So, like we talk about this often in terms of, uh, like with the Olympics. Okay, if the pro players don't play hockey, will people still watch hockey? And that's a whole different thing in Canada mm-hmm. in context. But I think it's this question of the ritual event of just tuning into the Briar, I feel like it's not team dependent for a lot of people. I feel like it's not an issue of, it's just perceived as a national championship. It's perceived uh, through that lens. Um, I think they'd be open to changes. I think that they would be very responsive to any issues that they see coming up in their ratings. Um, I don't feel like the issue is so cut and dry that they would just refuse to be open to this. Um, I don't think that's where we're at, but I do think that there is probably an element of thinking if we're going to do this, it's an experiment that could go for a number of years. We need some assurances from you that we will be revisiting this issue should there be too much of an impact on our ratings and that we're not seeing those kind of opportunities play out. Um, And I think that's, again, like with any kind of sport and broadcast tradition in Canada, you're dealing with, we've got this good thing going. We've got this tradition. That tradition can sustain audience through various changes as it did in the early 2000s, Jonathan's point, as it can in other cases, you just need to be able to adapt. You need to be willing to make adjustments. I think that's probably the contingency they'd be looking for in that case.
1: How, how long has TSN had the, what they call the season of champions, the, you know, Briar, Scotties, and the Worlds. Do either of you know?
2: Uh, so TSN started broadcasting like mid late 80s. I'm thinking like 86, 87. Oh, wow. Uh, and they they would, so the trad- tradition for a long time was TSN would do the weekday draws for the Briar and Scotties. Yeah. And then CBC would pick up the weekends. Uh, then sometime in the 90s, I think they started picking up other events i know cbc for years always also carried the junior championships like this is again back like back in my youth like in the 90s uh and then at some point they actually tried to pick up seniors and mix i'm not sure if they still do that anymore i think the ratings for those aren't aren't great so i'm not sure if they're on tv anymore and then the big switch was cbc actually bought the rights to all of the briar and scotties in the early 2000s and tried to put it on a i Cable channel called Discovery Canada that no one could find, and that was like a mass, yeah. There like a mass boycott, everything backlash, uh, and there's kind of a movement to get Linda and Ray back. So then TSN got all the ratings, just all those, all the properties. I think after that,
0: which also goes to the CBC's lack of funding to be able to make those kind of plays, which is the same reason why for a period of time the Olympics went to CTV and TSN um, because CBC just couldn't compete with the finances of it. So it also might have been that play in terms of not basically TSN pricing them out on the market. Um, but also because I think that everybody liked it better. <laughs> and it was, that's true. I mean, everybody wanted Vic and Ray back.
2: Yeah, like like to me, I think this residency requirements kind of a, like there's a history, especially in Canadian curling of the grassroots rising up when they don't like something, right? And yeah. actually, oddly, the boycott didn't really piss off grassroots curlers all that much. They were more, like, I think a lot of people actually were more annoyed at the Kevin Martins of the world thinking they were too big for for the game, right? There's, a, there's an egalitarian streak to curling where people are like, fine, if you win it, going through the path, that's fine. But if you start trying to act like you're better than the game, I think a lot of curling fans get upset about that. But the two things that invoked mass backlash was the getting rid of Linda and Ray, so moving all the curling over to this country Canada thing. And then the relegation system invoked Mm -hmm. a lot of backlash too, right? And that was seen as unfair to the Breyer and Scotties. Even everyone knows that PEI, and unless there's Gushu, Newfoundland and Labrador, and some of these kind of smaller provinces are very unlikely to ever win a briar, but everyone likes the idea that any one of those provinces could win a briar.
0: Yeah. You just get a team that puts together a run and gets a bit of luck to kind of pulls things together that it's possible.
2: Yeah. And like, you think of the fan favorites, like the, the, the great stories, like the Guy Hemmings runs in the nineties mm-hmm. or when, you know, the Mark Dacey upset in 2003, yep. that's just as much a part of the briar and the Scotties. And I think for TV, they love that too.
0: And I feel like, again, you could get someone invested in that even if the best teams aren't playing. Like, that could still be the Cinderella story of it. I think all those narratives can still play out. And in Canada, people are willing to watch those narratives even if the quote-unquote pros aren't playing. Like, I really don't think Canada is that... uh, They're not going to stick their nose up at that, right? Like, that doesn't seem very Canadian. It certainly doesn't seem very Canadian curling fan. Uh, that they would approach it that way. And so I think that ultimately TSM would probably feel like, you know what, let's try this, right? I don't, there's, it's a risk, I do think so. I do think there is a chance of a change happening, but I really don't feel like your average curling fan, which is a thing that exists in Canada, and apparently not in this country, um, <laughs> <No>. would, necessarily, <laughs> would necessarily respond so negatively that it would dramatically impact uh, the economic value of those rights to them.
2: I actually think the risk is to the pro teams that break with it, right? Yeah. So if they're told, you don't have to enter whatever. So if Holman or Kui, I'm not saying they're signaling that at all, but let's just as an example, say if one of those teams said, we're not entering playdowns because we don't care about those events. We're just going to cash field all the time, enter the Canada Cup, go to the Worlds that way. I think you could see a backlash against them as, as from the fan perspective saying, oh, they just think they're too good for regular curling. We're not going to cheer for them anymore. We're gonna cheer for whoever the underdog is, right? That that in many ways Furby had way more fans back in the early two thousands than Kevin Martin did. Kevin was kind of seen as the, you know, the greedy pro guy just trying to make as much money as possible, whereas Furby was standing up for the traditional values, right? That seemed to be a kind of common perception amongst curling fans back then.
0: Yes, which is a very Canadian narrative.
2: Yeah, yeah, for sure.
1: <laughs> I don't think it would ever happen in this country, to be frank.
2: No, in the U.S., I don't <laughs> no. think <they'd> care.
1: No. <laughs> they would care, no. They would side with the guy looking for more money.
2: Yeah. <laughs> um,
1: do you think that the, the test balloon from Curling Canada might have been what they did with mixed doubles last year where you had a, you know, half the field was, came in through winning their provincial playdowns and half the field were the teams with the cresting money? Uh, that came from Curling, Canada. Um, Do you think that they might be thinking of doing that with the Briar and the Scotties where you have, you know, you can come in through the traditional way and then we have a set number of spots reserved for the quote-unquote pro teams? Because if you you get rid of Team Canada and you combine the territories um, into one group and then you add four quote-unquote pro teams, that's still 16. That's the same number that was in last year.
2: Maybe I think well I think you already see that with the wild card but the really big rule that all the provincial associations insisted on is any wild card team had to enter through the playdown process cuz they were really worried that the pro teams all just ditch the playdown process and go right for this wild card slot and they saw that as detrimental to their provincial championship bottom lines. So I, I really think that's kind of an undersold factor here is what do these different provincial associations want? Like, you know, Manitoba, Alberta, Ontario, who are going to be the big three. They run big, big provincial championships mm-hmm. with TV contracts and fan bases. And if you're losing the Carruthers, the Cooys, the the Homans and the Eppings from those pro- those processes, that's like taking the stars out of that that format. So I think there might be, Fear about abolishing uh, regulations, like the the kind of residency requirements from those associations. But then, wouldn't their their
1: number of entrants would increase, though? Right, like if you're taking those big name teams out of the playdowns, you're going to have more people entering to try and make the Briar and the Scotties, and then you've got the pro teams who are ignoring um, residency requirements, going after the four spots that 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 they can go for to get in.
2: Yeah, exactly. So I'll I'll drop a little social science on you. We have something called a nat- what we call a natural breaching experiment, which is if uh-huh. you want to know what the effect is, you look at an example that happens already. So the best evidence for that is what happened with Newfoundland with Gushu being Team Canada, right? Uh-huh. A couple of years ago, I think there were no nobody bothered to sign up in Newfoundland Labrador playdowns, and now that Gushu was Team Canada last year, they had over a dozen teams sign up, and I think it all the numbers are going to be up again. And then you've got this guy Greg Smith, who fine, he doesn't make the playoffs, but he, he goes on a little run and kind of becomes one of the fan favors. Yeah, he a kind of right? story. Yeah. yeah, right.
1: Everyone yeah. fell in love with the guy.
2: Yeah, and so there's something to be said for figuring out some way to let the some way to let the pro team separate and find. I think everyone actually wants an elite team like a Kui or a Gushu or a Holman or a Jones playing at the worlds for Canada, playing in the Olympics. We, we'd be insane to. You know, send a, a team sliding out on their knees or whatever, right? But there's nothing to be said for letting the Scotties and the Briar be part of that feeder system and let teams get high level curling experience and then perhaps build out of that into becoming one of the top ten.
1: And that that feeder system. Um, really is the Grand Slam of Curling, which regardless of residency requirements, all these teams can play in. And that is not on TSN. That's on Sportsnet. And the reason it's on Sportsnet is because of a guy named Scott Moore who kind of rescued the Grand Slam of Curling before it went bankrupt. Um, And one thing that I just wanted to touch on real quick and ask you about, Miles, is uh, Scott Moore uh, recently announced that he's leaving Sportsnet. So this was a guy who was a big fan of curling, a big fan of the Grand Slam of curling and got it on there. And now curling's kind of, I guess, number one booster at Sportsnet is now leaving. So what, Miles, what do you think that the implications of that are for both the Grand Slam of curling and for curling coverage on Sportsnet?
0: It's always hard to know, so like, this happens all the time in particularly American broadcasting where sort of ownership changes and programs that were previously sort of beloved by executives but ultimately not well watched suddenly disappear, mainly because there's no longer a booster or a supporter there for it. I sort of feel like curling in Canada is different. I sort of feel like at the end of the day that there is this sort of broadcast tradition attached to it. You're seeing, like you say, you know, a fair amount of terms like ratings and sponsors seem solid. Um, it seems like it's in much better footing than it was when he came in. And you would hope that it doesn't feel like he is the only person holding that up. It feels like the other factors are sort of in play. Um, it's really going to be a question, I think, of how, whether or not there really did need to be somebody kind of overseeing this and checking in and keeping it healthy and going through that. Um, It's hard to know if that's the case. Um, You'd have to be sort of a fly in the wall to better understand those decisions, but certainly it raises a question. And as we've discussed, all sorts of questions happening around even Canadian curling coverage these days um, with no necessarily clear um, outcome of that process.
1: And correct me if I'm wrong, Sportsnet just recently um, dropped a whole bag of money to get the NHL coverage uh, in Canada, right?
0: A few years ago, yes.
1: Okay. So, I mean, the GSOC draws, you know, a decent number of viewers, not even where, not even anywhere close to what the Breyer and the Scotties draw in, but is that going to affect it? Are they going to look at it as, you know, this is an opportunity where we could be showing NHL games rather than showing... Um, you know, a random grand slam with uh, 1,500 people in the crowd.
0: Um, I think so. I'm checking the uh, coverage for the upcoming event, which is actually happening where my parents live. My father's uh, volunteering to do the 50-50. Oh, nice. (laughs) Yes, I know. What what a world we live in. Um, But it's in Toronto, Nova Scotia. Um, And so uh, what is interesting to me is that, like, curling happens primarily during the day. Right. For the round robin, which means it's not happening in a primetime time slot, which means it's not happening, coinciding um, with hockey. Um, and also the weekend events happening during the day, there may be afternoon games they're kind of moving from. But I did notice uh, that the uh, women's quarters on Saturday afternoon and the men's final on Sunday afternoon are both airing on CBC. Hmm. So I'm wondering, I would have to check Sportsnet's Schedule to be clear, but I'm wondering if they're sort of moving things around a little bit and almost as if to say, here, you know, for some of these, we're going to kind of push this over to CBC because we've got a hockey game to show. But we're still acknowledging that the other time slots, curling is going to be better than anything else we can air in them. Um, and I feel like that's where... As much as I do think there is a sense, well, if we, could, if we could be airing hockey, we could. They can't air hockey all the time. There's a limit to what they can work from. And I feel like Crowing also has a fan base, also has sort of a process. And because Crowing can fit into some of the other holes in the schedule where hockey doesn't naturally fit, I feel like it's always going to have a value because what else, like airing highlights during that, you know, two and a half hour broadcast window on. Thursday afternoon uh, is not going to get the ratings that curling is and i feel like that's always going to play in curling's benefit when it comes to a scheduling perspective
1: that's true it is it is the rare live event that can be on at 10 in the morning.
0: (laughs) Right. And I noticed like on Friday night, for example, um, they're pushing the last round Robin to Sportsnet 360 to streaming. And I think that's another factor we need to deal with, which is the fact that as they're looking at their streaming platforms as being part of their appeal, people are increasingly watching through apps and through nonlinear viewing that they can say, look, we're going to air as much live on TV as we can has value to us, but if something does conflict with a hockey game, we're going to push this to our streaming site and expect that most of our users, um, particularly younger ones, uh, will be able to tune in that way and able to work from there.
2: Yeah, the other thing to keep in mind is Canada's got Canadian content laws, so broadcasters (laughs) that keep their license have to have a minimum amount of Canadian content. And so from that perspective, curling's actually... Uh, something that actually gets decent ratings regardless of the event. And so broadcasters are always going to want events like curling, like CFL football, yeah, like the NHL, in order to kind of meet their Canadian content requirements.
0: I'm actually, I'm actually, this is, this, I'm a bad media scholar. Apparently I'm actually have no idea like what would happen to a hockey game that doesn't feature Canadian teams, but does have Canadian broadcasters attached to it, whether or not that counts towards the Canadian content.
2: That's an interesting question, right? I, I was wondering, because Ryan and I were chatting about putting a slam in the U.S., and I'm wondering if one of the reasons Sportsnet doesn't do that is because that might affect its Canadian content rules.
0: I honestly don't know. I mean, like to be fair, like, I mean, sports given how much of the Canadian rights they have to things, I don't think they'd have a huge problem with the 40%. um, But at the same time, it does maybe give them, whether it's tax breaks or whether it's any number of things, to factor into their broadcasting um, restrictions. Whenever you have a sort of nationalized media system of that nature, those things all play into account in ways that I frankly um, haven't fully investigated. The perils of doing most of my media training here in the U.S.
2: Yeah.
1: (laughs) The the NHL is – is an interesting one, but even though... I mean, even though there hasn't been a Canadian team in the NHL in the Stanley Cup Final in a while, most of those players are still Canadian. So, <laughs> maybe is, it, it might, it might yeah. still count.
0: That is, it's, it's just, it's just such a weird thing to have to like, to explain to people where it's just like, oh no, Canadian teams performing, and I'm just like, look down the roster, just, just look, just, just think about this, where it's like one of the dominant teams of this era, obviously the Pittsburgh Penguins, Sidney Crosby, this national media star, like it's just such a different different world. It's such a different sort of point of sports appeal. And then that's hard enough to explain, but then trying to explain curling coverage in Canada is just a whole other thing.
1: And that's that's another unique thing about uh, curling is you're not going to see a team where it's Nicholas Adine and Mark Kennedy playing together because you're so focused on the Olympics. At the very least, um, your residency restrictions are at least within your own country.
0: And so and I think that's that's good in some ways. I mean, obviously, you've got elements of the Continental Cup that kind of start to mix things up a little bit, at least in terms of seeing them on the same side, um, working mm-hmm. for the same goals, um, which is fun. Uh, but at the same time, I think you're right, that there's still that sort of focus to it um, playing out. And I feel like that's that's also part of its appeal and something that we'll see how it changes with the Briar and everything else coming through.
1: And you had mentioned streaming, um, particularly for this upcoming grand slam event, I'm not going to watch any of the masters, at least not legally, uh, because here in the U S, uh, a season pass for the grand slam of curling, uh, and this is for strictly streaming is 125 bucks U S. Uh, and then for the masters, it's $22 U S when I'm not going to be able to watch really any of those games. Cause I'll be at work, uh, or actually in the case of the masters, I'll be in Blacksburg, um, So I'm not going to pay that much. Whereas you look at the streaming for the streaming that's set up for the Briar and the Scotties That's through ESPN three, although I have a feeling that they're going to push that coverage to ESPN plus, which I pay for, but it's $5 a month rather than, rather than $125 for a season of strictly curling coverage. But you get a lot of free streaming on TESN, which is this independent, um, online based, uh, network that covers curling here in the U S ESPN three, which is all of the TSN coverage, uh, mainly due to, I guess what TSN is partially owned by ESPN. Uh, and then on YouTube through the world curling tour and the world curling federation. So I'm, I'm kind of priced out of the grand slam. If it was a lot lower price point, maybe I'd pay it. Um, But there's so much free streaming curling available that I'm not going to pay it. Do you think that the GSOC is really missing out, kind of missing the boat here?
0: I mean, yeah, like I would never – those kind of prices would never draw me in. Um, I think what they're sort of – what you're dealing with here is a sort of enthusiast market, right? That they're, they know the amount of people who are actually trying to seek out and watch all of this curling is they view a sort kind of a captive audience. There's a limited amount of options available. There's obviously – workarounds people can try to figure out to try to get access to Canadian coverage directly. But uh, at the end of the day, they're kind of know that, okay, if you care that much, if you are really the kind of person who would seek out watching this, maybe you're also the kind of person who would pay $210 to access all of it or $22 to access a specific event. Um, I, I think that that's a little bit naive. I think that in our current era of streaming, the idea that people would kind of tune in for that much is sort of an issue. But this is often the case with even sports with more of an American tradition. Um, Tennis Channel uh, also has uh, puts a lot of its coverage behind its sort of Tennis Channel Plus, which is $90 a year. Um, I think it's actually even more than that. I think I got a discount when I did it. and they clearly are sort of tuning in where it's like, look, if, you're, if, you don't, if you want to watch more than the Grand Slams in tennis, right? if you want to watch more than the US Open and the French Open and all of this, and you want to see what's going on in Shanghai or what's going on in Stockholm, the idea is that you are the kind of person willing to pay that $120 a year. And I feel like particularly with a sport like curling, people are starving for coverage, but they're also not willing to starve themselves. Um, to watch it. And so I feel like there is maybe a way in which you can set that at a more reasonable level and get a higher volume of people and also maybe appeal to those people who are trying to get into the sport, who are maybe not the kind of person who's going to spend that kind of money, but wants to watch more curling covers to learn more about the game. Like I did growing up, they're completely priced out of that market. They're completely priced out of that system. There's really, unless they go hunting for the free coverage, no way for them to say, I'm going to invest in learning more about curling through coverage. And I feel like that's a real opportunity for, for growing the sport even that sort of gets missed in that case because of the nature of the financial models involved.
1: I will also say the other reason that I'm not going to pay to watch the masters or any of the GSOC events is I've bought two in the past and the partner that GSOC has, uh, for their international streaming coverage this year, TV, uh, company uh it's absolutely terrible <laughs> trying to trying to stream these games is absolutely horrible and you look at um when i watch streaming games on youtube or through espn it's really easy for me on roku to go on and have that on the big screen for me and the company that gsoc uses it's nearly impossible to get it streamed to my television when i do yep. it always it drops like every five minutes and i have to re- reboot the whole thing
0: and that's the thing, right? Increasingly, it's not simply a matter of the can you access it, it's a matter of usability. Like, can you easily access this coverage in a way you actually want to watch it? And I think that's something that's happened a lot. Um, actually, recently, uh, the WTA, so the Women's Tennis Association, um, used this BN Sports um, kind of streaming. They have a cable channel, but it's mostly streaming. Mm-hmm. And it was just a disastrous user experience. No one was watching it and nobody was finding it. Everyone thought that. It was just like completely abandoned. And that's a case where like that contract might have made money for the people who made it because it was a good financial deal. But if people aren't going to use it, it has no value. And that's what I think you kind of need to think about when you make those partnerships.
1: So what do you think is the future for curling um, now that all of these streaming options are, are available to us? Um, is it going to be a sport that is a, is a, is going to be able to take advantage of the new technology that's developing for watching live television, um, or do you think it's going to be kind of left behind because it has a partner in, in at least in the United States, in NBC Universal that doesn't have, in my opinion, from watching a bunch of television through streaming, that it doesn't have the strongest uh, technology behind it for streaming options.
0: What I would say is that, look, curling's built for the logic of streaming because it's a niche sport uh, that has a lot of broadcast time in that there's a lot of broadcasts in the context of an event um, that you can put up on streaming and have different feeds without commentary, which is annoying, but for my purposes, I don't really need it, um, mm-hmm. that you can simply see what's happening. You can see what's going on and you can put them all up and people can watch them as they need to. You can pull from international feeds from other broadcasters and simply kind of move them through. It should be a no-brainer in that respect. Where I think you have the struggle there is that the, the force that should be working towards making curling more accessible, NBC... Because it has value to them every four years, is much more interested in maintaining these very packaged, infomercial like circumstances. They're not really interested in just sort of opening the floodgates and making curling accessible. They're interested in making curling legible by the terms that they've set forth. And so I do think that given that fact, when we look at these other alternatives, people streaming this coverage. Looking through that, I certainly would hope that curling starts to sort of populate these services. People start to think, whether it's ESPN Plus or something else, how can we leverage potential rights to get this sport out, to take advantage of the Olympic boost, but in ways that are not NBC's version of that, but rather are just maybe there's interest in curling more broadly. I would hope. That, that is the case. But is a matter of, does a streaming service step forward? Is there a market for a curling-specific service that could start to provide costs, but then you don't have the infrastructure in place? Is someone with the infrastructure willing to make that investment? Those are all very open questions that I think speak to a larger uncertainty about curling broadcasting in this country, which is, okay, there's a gold medal. There's interest. And every four years, social media lights up like, oh, I love this curling thing. I actually – I remember I talked about it in class uh, during the 2014, uh, 2018 games, and one of my students – was sort of just like, like, it sent me an email that night with a photo of her family watching curling. And she's like, we turned it on. It's so fascinating. Like <laughs> when you get those kind of reactions to the sport, to playing this out, you sort of start to realize that, like how do we leverage this? But then four years go by and we don't. I think streaming makes this more possible than ever before to find a way to create a curling broadcasting tradition within these nonlinear formats. It's just a matter of, will the same barricades that were put up four years ago, just kind of go back up in different forms, whether it's a matter of where the rights exist, whether it's the kind of apps being used. um, I feel like it's just cursed in some way, but I would hope if we're going to break the curse, I do think these nonlinear platforms are a big part of that.
1: Uh, Jonathan and I have a friend uh, back in Oklahoma named Mark uh, who suggested using Twitch because it's an opportunity to have streaming available, but then you pay for extra content. And I'm not surprised that Mark would suggest Twitch because... I used to live with Mark, and that's all he ever watches.
0: Well, and I think that's the thing where it's like you start looking at platforms like that, where it's like, okay, Twitch would, if you've, Twitch to me would be a great platform if you can find, whether it's We're Crowing Federation or somebody sort of creating broadcasts to be able to have enthusiasts in the US who maybe. Are, have a better understanding of how to frame things to sort of comment over them, right? To provide their own color commentary, to be able to interpret what's going on with the action, to be able to take often, I find very bland international broadcasts, and maybe provide a little bit of sort of uh, engagement. There can be people in the comments that they're interacting with uh, moving through there. I think kind of those platforms, not to entirely support Mark's point, because it feels like we are kind of setting up some of that dynamic. But I do think you could work with that. You could figure that out. But again, it's, okay, what are the rights agreements with that? What is the labor involved in that? Who would do that labor? What is the commitment to that kind of investment in kind of building that grassroots tradition on a broadcasting level to maybe then feed the grassroots as a whole? I don't know. I, I, I think all, every idea makes me excited about the possibility while also being pessimistic about whether it comes to fruition
2: yeah i think that some of the associations are actually super conservative when it comes to rights i remember there was one debate on the u.s board when i was there i can't quite remember the full context but it was basically some family were this is like rent 2010 so about 10 years ago right they they were live streaming the game somehow back to family and some officials got upset saying that as a junior championship or something yeah. And uh, some officials there got upset and said, well, actually, there's a non-electronic broadcast agreement here because you're violating our our broadcast rights. But there were no, broad- no, no corporations broadcasting <laughs> U.S. juniors at this time. So th- there's a lot of these kind of – Jonathan, they got on to me for doing that at arenas one year. Yeah, <laughs> and it's a bit – like to me, it's a bit like – like if you look at the NBA, which has got massive TV rights, yeah. one of the things I find really interesting about it is they put basically no copyright control on their video, mm-hmm. right? So yeah. uh, if you, I, I wake up because I'm because of the time shift, I want to look at NBA games from the night before. I just go on Twitter, and there's just loads of video, you know, and it, some of it's by the NBA, a lot of it's just by fans just doing screen grabs and showing a, a dunk yeah. they liked.
1: And then Major League Baseball is the exact opposite; <laughs> <and wants> everything <laughs> taken down.
2: Yeah. Even yeah. gifts, <laughs> right? Yeah, and, but who, and it, who's winning that game? The NBA, right. right?
1: And I think the other factor too is that like
0: there's this belief uh, within these sports that the that the financial windfall would be somebody buying broadcast rights, and so they're always holding out. Like when is like, we need to keep them in place? We need to avoid diluting them in some way, and I think the reality is is that that's a terrible way to build a game. By sort of holding out for this large broadcast contract by hoping and by making a streaming deal with a terrible service because they're willing to pay you versus maybe creating your own infrastructure, which makes you less money, but makes your sport more accessible. I would think that of any sport at this moment in time that curling in the United States of America should be hoping and finding ways to make itself as accessible as possible um, from a broadcast perspective. But that's not going to be the most financially beneficial route, and so if they see Schuster's gold medal as a potential financial boon – they look at that as a way of how can we maintain the value of our rights. If they look at it as a grassroots boon, it's a matter of how can we use the openness of broadcasting to further grow the sport. I think those are two different approaches. And I think they're inherently in conflict with each other and how to balance that out will be their challenge moving forward.
1: Uh, And I guess finally, where do the the rules changes fit in what you just talked about, Miles? Because we've seen curling kind of change its rules to make itself more um you know you know to to make itself more attractive to television we've got the five rock rule they're trying to encourage more scoring because one of the downsides to curling on live tv is you see you you have a lot of blank ends which is not it, not exciting television at all So you've got the five rock rule yeah. I guarantee you that the next Olympics are going to be eight ins instead of Ten where does that fit in with the context of, of what you just talked about They're
0: trying everything they can making those subtle Adjustments moving from there I'm, I'm not Mad at those adjustments I'm not really a purist uh, When it comes to it I understand uh, The logic that changes the game As someone who f- watches for strategy It creates new strategy right you play things Out differently uh, pushes you to score more Play more attention more shot making. I think that all works out. The question is, okay, you've got this more exciting sport. How do you communicate that to people? Because I really don't feel like curling's problem is that all sorts of people are tuning in and getting bored and no longer tuning in. I think it's that they're not tuning in at all. right? I feel like it's not that the television product of curling is turning people away. It's that they have no idea it exists or where to find it. Um, And so... Given that fact, I think making it more exciting will absolutely help them when, once they capture people, um, and I feel like that could be to their benefit and we'll see what happens, but I don't think that it's going to make curling so exciting that it changes the basic discovery point. Um, and that's where they have to do the work, and that has nothing to do with the rules of the game and everything to do with how they market it, how they advertise it, and where they make it accessible.
1: All right. So I'll finish it up with this question really for both of you. So NBC is USA Curling's major media rights partner. What should USA Curling ask NBC to do to help grow curling at a grassroots level?
2: I would try to get a marquee tournament on NBC Sports Network. And so I think the tournament they now run out of Blaine every year, It's I guess they call it the U.S. Open. I would Try to look over the next quad into how you can make that an event that's on TV. Maybe that means getting a bit more money to get a bit better quality teams in. They got pretty good teams, but kind of get the top, top teams in and try to make that basically the top TV event in the US and make it a legit event.
0: I would agree with that. Um, I think also like if you're going to run an event like this kind of uh, curling neck in America and tape this whole thing and move from there, um, I think you need to tape something with a little bit more of competitive team situation, right? Where you've got, Mm -hmm. and this is, this this sounds bad. Like I think it's weird that you hold that event and have no Canadian presence. I don't know if that was a concern over uh, the competitive situation getting blown out. If they, particularly wanted to choose teams that are also in rebuilding stages so the U.S. had a better chance of winning in those settings. I don't know what the goals were, but to create something where people, because I think part of the issue is like curling night in America. I don't think curling fans in the U.S. would be all that excited to watch that. Um, I don't, I guess it's curling on TV and there's a novelty to that still, Mm -hmm. but it's not particularly exciting. It's all exhibition. It was all taped long in advance. Um, The Curling I saw wasn't particularly great, but if you create an event that has people that curling fans in the u.s would have grown up sort of seeing at world championships whether it's canadian teams or sweden or anything else that you can kind of get that kind of investment in if you want to build those kind of exhibitions i feel like you need to create something that both curling enthusiasts and curling newbies want to see so that there is a bit more of a groundswell such that local clubs would maybe be encouraging people we should be watching this we should be supporting this And I don't know if that's happening with the product they're currently putting out. And I feel like that's something they need to think about their product, I think, a little bit more carefully versus just trying to replicate their Olympic narratives and just basically say, hey, remember how great USA is? USA, 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 Um, which admittedly (laughs) as a Canadian always confuses me about U.S. Olympic coverage, but I'm used to it now. But it's frustrating to see that replicated in that form.
1: This was a lot of fun. Miles, thank you so much for joining us. Um, Tell everyone where they can find you on the internet.
0: Uh, You can find me way too many places on the internet, but the primary place is on Twitter where I'm at at M-E-M-L-E-S. You can also find me at cultural-learnings.com for my personal blog. And as noted, you can find my coverage of curling both at Curling News uh, and uh, an old piece of the AV Club about the Sochi games, where I also review other TV on a regular basis.
1: Awesome. I saw your – one of the things I related to most was you did a story, uh, I think it was on AV Club, about the history of the Disney episode for all of ABC's uh, family sitcoms, and I just remember going that through that, thinking I watched all of these. <laughs>
0: It was honestly like when I think about that, like uh, there's various things over the time of writing about the AV club that I've been allowed to do that I'm just like, how am I allowed to do this? Writing about curling was 100% one of them. Um, I wrote a piece about Fraggle Rock once. That was very much my childhood um, come to life. But that was another case where it's like just being able to explore those things very much. I'm always interested in the industrial dynamics, the kind of decisions, those types of things, but just also to just revisit things in my past life and take them very seriously. That's basically my raison d'etre in life. So being able to do that on the internet is that much more
1: fun. All right. If you're a fan of TV, definitely find Miles's writings uh, in various places on the internet. Uh, Thank you so much for listening. Uh, Remember to subscribe and leave a review for us. Uh, You can listen to us on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher and TuneIn and really wherever it is that you listen to podcasts. Uh, If you need to get a hold of us or if you have any questions or comments about this episode or any of our past episodes, you can hit us up at rocks across the pond at gmail.com uh, and on twitter at curlingpodcast we love to hear from you um, thank you so much and we will talk to you again soon right